Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 14. Thank you for listening as we continue to converse with amazing artists and learn how they manage their finances. If you are able, please leave a rating and review to help grow our listener base. Today's guest is sound designer Cricket S. Myers. She is based in L.A., but has also designed on Broadway and received a Tony Award nomination for Best Sound Design of a Play for Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which holds historical significance in that it was the first time a woman was nominated in that category. For Bengal Tiger, she also won the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Sound Design of a Play. In L.A., she has received more than 20 Ovation Award nominations and has designed for the Mark Taper Forum, the Geffen Playhouse, the Amundsen Theater, La Jolla Playhouse, South Coast Rep, and Disney Cruise Lines. If you visit her website, your eyes will glaze over trying to read the list of productions she has designed and award nominations she has received. We recorded this way back on May 11th, 2020, so it was earlier on in the COVID pandemic and before the Black Lives Matter protests had reawakened in the USA. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Cricket S. Myers, to the podcast. Glad to have you here. Yeah, I'm excited. I think Cricket is an amazing name. Thanks. I <laughs> thank my parents on a regular basis for that name. So. It's, it's just so, it's so, it also fits in with like an uh, artistic career. Totally. And I. it's so much like, it's a business that name recognition is really important. And people are always saying to me, oh, I see your name in programs everywhere. And it's like, well, I'm not in every program, but you remember it every time you see it. <laughs> so. I mean, I saw you, I know your work from Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. That was nine years ago. I don't think I've seen any of your other shows, but I remembered like, oh yeah, cricket. <laughs> <laughs> Could you give us a recap of how you got to where you are in your career right now? I fell in love with theater in high school when I transferred to a new high school and I didn't know anyone. And my mom said, you should try out for the play. You'll meet a lot of people that way. So I did. And then I went to college as a physics major and did my work study in theater and realized very quickly that although I liked physics, I loved theater and changed my major. In you know, it was a liberal arts, uh, Colorado College, a liberal arts school, so I majored in theater in general. And then got out into the real world, had a bunch of really fantastic internships. Um, I worked for San Diego Opera, I worked for Central City Opera, um, which told me right away I love music because um, I went right to the opera world. And then I got an internship with uh, Midland Community Theater. They allowed me to do anything I wanted. So uh, I got to work in lighting and sound. I got to paint the sets. I got to build the sets. I got to go prop shopping. Um, and I found that it was, it was lighting and sound that I was really drawn to and really loved. Uh, so I decided to apply to grad school. You know, I'd focused mostly on stage management in undergrad, and that's not what I wanted to do in the world. Uh, so I decided grad school was kind of the fastest route to redirecting a little bit and becoming more of the creative presence in the room. 
So um, I had an amazing interview with John Gottlieb, who runs the program at CalArts, and fell in love with his program, and he convinced me uh, that I was a sound designer. I was kind of leaning towards lighting. He looked at me and said, you're a sound designer and you just don't know it yet. You're not a visual person, but you are a designer. I said, oh, I don't really know anything about sound. And he smiled and said, I can teach you everything you need to know. So yeah, I went to CalArts, um, got my degree there in 2003, and then started freelancing. And I was really fortunate to meet a lot of incredible mentors. Um, John Gottlieb hired me to assist him at Center Theater Group. Uh, Drew Dalzell, um, who now runs Diablo Sound, was uh, instrumental in getting me introduced to all the small theaters in Los Angeles, assisting him. And then if he was too busy to take a show, he'd say, well, you should just call my assistant Cricket. Like, I can't do it. Call her. So I, I went straight into freelancing, bounced around. And then uh, in 2006, the Mark Taper Forum offered me a design. And it was my first kind of lort big show design. It just took off from there. And it was, it was Center Theater Group that gave me Bengal Tiger. It transferred from their small space at the Kirk Douglas to their, their medium-sized space at the taper, and then went from there to the Richard Rogers on Broadway. Uh, and my relationship with Moises Kaufman in the show meant I got to go with it. Uh, we won the drama desk for it, and I became the first woman nominated for a Tony in sound for it. Yeah, no big um, deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was, it was exciting and overwhelming and, and exciting, but um, as much as I love New York City, I, I love L.A. more. I didn't want to move, so I came back to L.A., and um, I work, uh, you know, in, in regional theater mostly at this point, and then I have a relationship with a, a lot of the small theaters in town, too, that I'll come and play with them for a while. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, I, lo- I looked you up, and then I went to your website, and it was just like, your list of nominations is like, you have to scroll down like three pages to be <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> My website's horribly out of date right now, too. Oh, okay, which, so you have more even to add, yeah. <laughs> you would think with this amount of time off that I would have gotten around to fixing it, but I have not yet. Maybe, so. maybe by the time this comes out, it'll be better. Maybe. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on it. I'll work on it. <laughs> I have a reason to now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is a side tangent question, but set designers, lighting designers, they can sort of be good at Instagram posting. Like, your sound designer, like, how do you... Do you at all? I any of that? don't, I guess. SoundCloud is a, a great way to share things, and I know a lot of designers who share their work uh, via SoundCloud, which isn't, I guess, as social media orientated, um, but it's a great way to embed things on websites or on other platforms. I tend to post photos of the show and say, come listen to my music because most people are visually orientated. So they want to see the pictures and that's what's going to bring them to the show. Um, So now I want to jump into learning your creative personality, which I've gotten feedback on this podcast. And apparently I talk about people too much and don't talk about finance enough. So so I'm supposed to cut this section down, but we'll see. (laughs) What is your favorite live event or, or show to go see as an audience member? You know, I've been really getting into the idea of like immersive theater. Um, and theater that uh, kind of breaks the fourth wall has been really interesting to me. 
and I've really enjoyed those kinds of shows. Ones that the audience feels like they're an active participant in some way have been really exciting for me, and they're they're also very exciting from the sound perspective. You're not in a situation where the audience is in one place and the cast is in another place. So like they they all become the same thing, and what the cast needs to hear to do their job versus what the audience needs to hear to enjoy the show will change. And so having those groups mingle is really exciting for me. Interesting. Uh, side note, we're recording this May 11th, 2020, amid the COVID-19 shutdown, lockdown pandemic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Saying that, because I was reminded, because this immersive theater thing, I mean, I'm age 32, so maybe it's been around forever, but I feel like over the last five-ish years is when I have noticed it really becoming this thing that people like love to go see immersive theater. Yes, I'd agree. So it's like a new thing. And I will say that I love haunted houses. There's just something I love about going. I like theater and watching the thing on the stage. I do not like being immersed. So I, I myself do not go to these things, but they're becoming such a thing that I'm, it's only a matter of time before I'm going to have to go to these. <laughs> well, and I think there's a difference between immersive and interactive. I don't want to be an audience participant. I don't want to be dragged up on stage. I don't want to be in front of an audience. I'm the person who likes to sit in the back of the room in dark clothing and work with headphones on. So I don't want to be dragged up on the stage. But I like the way that the stage is not limited to an, a confined area, that the stage can be anywhere in the room. And that's exciting for me. I saw uh, Rock of Ages, you know, Rock of Ages takes place in a bar. And so they built a bar and that's where they performed it. And so I was sitting at a bar table and I was eating food and drinking drinks. And sometimes the actors came from behind me and sometimes they were off to the side and sometimes they were in front of me. And that was exciting. Like that I enjoyed. Had they dragged me up and made me dance, I would have been very unhappy. <laughs> so um, what is a piece of art that you love? I don't know that there's any specific piece, but if you ask my favorite artist, like painter, I'm going to say Rothko. I love the colors and I love the way the colors blend and I love the way the colors make me feel. They at first glance, they look so simple. And then the more you look, you realize how much more complex they really are and how many layers there are there. I like taking the time to stand in front of them and kind of discover how deep they go. I like to strip away the layers. Amazing. Um, do you have uh, an art book or art resource that you like? I want to go see them in real life rather than look at them in a book. It's never the same. So um, When you're working on a, a sound design, where do you pull inspiration from? It depends on the play. It totally depends on the play. You know, Bengal Tiger, I had traveled to the Middle East. So although I had not been in Baghdad, I had been in similar areas. And so I had a sense of how the world feels different there. The quality of the sound feels different, what you're hearing. Traffic in New York City versus traffic in Los Angeles versus traffic in Baghdad or uh, Morocco or India, it all sounds different. The qualities are different. I've traveled a lot and I think that helps inform you know, everywhere I go, I spend time listening, just listening to the world. Like close your eyes and spend a minute and see how those textures feel different than what we're used to. You know, for music, I, I listen to everything all, all the time. I've always got different things going. And sometimes I'll hear a piece of music that's like, 
that's really exciting. And I'll, you know, like flag it or, you know, like it on Spotify or whatever market in some way is like, this is an exciting piece of music to me. And, and maybe I'll find something, some way to use it or some way to inform whatever I'm working on at the time. What are some of your hobbies? You know, I like to get outside as much as possible. Um, I used to be a runner. It's, it's trailed off in the past couple of years, but funny enough with the world being shut down, I find myself with more time. I used to work with a lot of different animal rescues and now I I focus mostly on rabbit rescues. So I have um, some rabbits around the house. I have a a colony of community cats uh, in the backyard that I take care of and feed and trap uh, trap and neuter release. So they, they keep me pretty busy. I love to read. I'm always reading. I transition to, you know, like Kindle and iBooks. I've always got multiple books with me. I've always got a book in my hand. If I can get a quiet five or 10 minutes, I'll sit down and read a little bit. Uh, now switching to your financial personality, your demographics, can you describe your demographics? So, uh, you know, white, cisgendered female, um, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, as, as Caucasian as you can get. Um, I'm, f- I'm 42 years old, so uh, Gen X. <laughs> and what is your geographic background and your education? I grew up in Michigan uh, and then did my undergrad in Colorado and then moved out to Los Angeles for grad school. So I have an MFA uh, and I'm living in uh, Los Angeles now. And I feel like this is good. I think you're maybe the second person that's not been from New York that I've talked to. I, I just don't know how L.A. theater works. But you have clearly had a, a very good career. <laughs> I grew up in it. <laughs> yeah, you, ha- you have worked a ton. So you clearly, I guess, somebody can people can move to L.A. and do well. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of people don't think of L.A. as a theater town, and we actually have a thriving theater community of all various shapes and sizes. Uh, so it's a really fantastic community, and you can absolutely make a living here. Do you consider yourself not good with money or do you consider yourself a money wizard? Somewhere in between, I wouldn't say I'm a wizard, but I'm very careful and I learned very early to budget and to be conservative. When I came out of school, you know, I would have one month where I would make three or four thousand dollars and then the next month I would make no money. (laughs) So I learned very quickly to set a strict budget and stick to it that just because I've got more money coming in doesn't mean I can spend more money. I have to put it in the savings account because next month I might not have that money coming in. And early in my career, I rarely saw more than a month or two in advance. So I didn't know what the next months would bring. So I learned to be very careful and very conservative and to stick money in a savings account anytime I could so that it would be available to me if I needed it the next month. Um, I met in the point in my career, although not with COVID, but before COVID, um, where I was booking six to nine months out. Now I'm in a position where I know what my income will be eight months from now, nine months from now, which gave me a kind of a much better grasp on how much I had to save and how much I could splurge and take that trip or buy that thing that I wanted because things were a little, things are a little more predictable for me now. That's fantastic. You said you budgeted. Have you like actually had a budget your whole life? Yeah, I use Quicken. It syncs to my bank account. Um, and so I'll set up a budget in Quicken. And I, you know, the past three, four years, I've been a lot 
more casual about it and really haven't gone back and revamped it because I, it was comfortable. I was putting plenty of money aside and, and making plenty. When the world shut down, one of the first things I did was go back to Quicken and say, okay, I'm now living off of unemployment. My income is dramatically reduced. And now I actually have to start paying attention again because I don't know if this shutdown is going to last a month or three months or six months or nine months. I have to start being ready for that now so it doesn't catch me off guard in six months. So. That's awesome. Good good for you. You're very good with money. <laughs> my tech my um, tech guy laughs because I, like, I just email him everything to do my thing. And he's like, you're one of the most organized artists I've ever worked with. Because like I have all the receipts and I have all of the everything in its own category and like Quicken has been set up for years to track what's a business expense versus what's a personal. So it's all there and ready come tax season. So it's so much can be automated because you can say every time I buy from this place, it's this kind of expense. Um, so I don't every month have to go through and say Starbucks is personal, Starbucks is personal. So, you know, I could just say Starbucks is a personal coffee shop expense. And then every time I buy for it, it automatically tags it. Um, and then different restaurants. Sometimes I'm there on business meetings so I can go in and change it from, you know, just casual restaurant to business meeting. Well, and I have W-2 income versus 1099 income as well. So I have to track expenses differently depending on which uh, form I'm on. Yes, correct. I ha- I call that a gray area in my spreadsheet <laughs> <laughs> that, that my accountant has never asked me about. <laughs> With um, So California pays, passed a law called AB5. It helps really clarify what an independent contractor is and when a business can classify you as an independent contractor. So more and more shows are moving to W-2s now. So I have to be a lot more careful about when I track my mileage and when I track my uh, expenses because different things can be written off for those different, you know, things. So Side note that I, this is me making this up, I don't know anything, but I feel like with the coronavirus pandemic and um, unemployment situations happening, I actually feel like that law sort of helped clarify things a little bit so that now there's so many things Te- there's there's so many gig workers now, like outside of theater in the general world, that I think that actually helped like with the uh, CARES Act and getting money out to people. Um, and I just feel like that that bill helped force that conversation earlier at some point. And I don't know that the CARES Act would have been. I'm not going to call it generous. <laughs> that's, that's not yeah. the right way to say it. But it it might not have been as easy for some some theater artists to get on unemployment or get some social safety net um, if if there weren't so many gig workers. And California like headed headed that up, trying to figure that out. You know, not not perfectly, but but they're figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because nobody else is. Right. <laughs> Um, Going back to the beginning of your career, did you have student debt when you got out of school? Yeah, I have student loans, um, and I still do. And how long have you been out? Uh, I graduated in 2003. I'm in a lot better position than a lot of my friends. My parents paid for my college. Um, They didn't want me to accrue the debt, um, and so they outright paid for 
for my undergrad. Uh, when I went to grad school, it was a combination of, of scholarship from CalArts and uh, student loans. But my I came out at a time that interest rates were very, very low. Uh, so when I consolidated uh, after I graduated, um, I got a very low interest rate. And part of the deal of the consolidation was that if I paid my first 24 payments on time, my interest rate would drop a whole another percentage point. Uh, and so my uncle, as a graduation present, paid my first 24 payments in one large payment. My interest rate dropped to 2% immediately, which made it its made them uh, much more tolerable than a lot of my colleagues. Yeah. Okay. But you still have them, right? I do. And, you, and you've and you been out of school for 17 years. Yes. <laughs> and, and you had two years paid, paid for. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I love that you're like, yeah, I'm in great shape. I'm in great shape. Still paying this thing 17 years later. <laughs> yes. But the, the payments are small compared to like my car payment, you know? Absolutely. Do you, do you, do you sort of have a, a plan of when you might finish or do you know? Pre-COVID, yes. Uh, I was paying, you know, uh, at least double what I had to each month um, with the intention of, of paying them off, you know, hopefully in the next three to four years, it, it, which was the same with the credit card debt that I have remaining. I was paying, uh, I was paying double the minimum twice a month. So I was basically paying four times what I had to just to get rid of them. Now that I am on employment with a much stricter budget, I'm, I'm back to paying the minimums. And uh, I think the forecast for when theater is going to open versus when financially I'll get back to as stable as a place as I was before. It, nobody knows what that forecast is, but I think it's at least a year. And I think before I start feeling stable and comfortable will be much longer than that. So right now I'm back to paying the minimums. I, you know, as long as I keep the interest at bay, I'm happy and, you know. So I, I'm just going to say you have at least another five years on those loans. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I just still love that that will be 22 years and you're still like, I'm in great shape. Right. Like, that's just a commentary yeah. on the United States of America. <laughs> right. Well, and I think the reason I feel that way is because the interest rate's so low. Even paying the minimum, I'm seeing them drop every month. And I think a lot of my colleagues have higher interest rates and aren't able to pay as much into them. So they're seeing the principal balance stay the same and they're just paying off interest, which makes them feel like there's no progress on them. Whereas I see an end in sight. I know that the principal is going down because I can pay a little bit more. I feel less stress about them. I, yeah, I, that's the thing we've talked about with previous guests is that starting, like if somebody can start with no student debt, yeah, you're starting at zero, but starting at zero versus starting at $100,000 of debt is massively different. <laughs> Um, and, and also, I have actually can't believe I've never even talked about this uh, with anyone yet, but you said credit card debt. I can't believe I don't ask about that. Like, why Why would I not ask about that? I can't believe I've never even thought of it. I have very much a love-hate relationship with credit card debt. <laughs> I, I came out of grad school and was making very, very little money. Because my parents were smart, they had me get a, an American Express very, you know, as soon as I got accepted to college. So I had a card that I would use and then pay off in full and use and pay off in full. So I earned a a credit score very quickly and a credit history very quickly. So my credit cards were willing to give me more and more, you know, in available credit. And so coming out of grad school, I relied on them a lot. 
for the first couple of years. And then I got to a place where I was stable. Um, I was paying them down more than I was using them. Um, I got rid of them completely. I had no credit card debt at all, but I still had the available, you know, the available credit to me. And then I bought a house. <laughs> um, and the first year I bought the house, the plumbing crapped out and the, you know, this broke and I had three rabbits get sick, which, you know, racked up um, a lot of, a lot of debt there. And I was pre COVID. I was at the point that within four or five months, my debt would be gone again. And it, it took five years, but I was at the point where my debt would be gone again. And now I've, of course I've pulled way back. I'm just paying the minimum. So it's going to take a little, little bit longer, but I'm, you know, it's like, I met this, it's like they went way up, they came way down, they went way up. Now they're way down again, but they're not gone. <laughs> okay. Now, now I want to ask you about a house because you're the fourth person here. I think that has bought property. And I of course want to ask you how much it's worth and all that, but I'll just ask, <laughs> I'll just ask like how, how, I assume you have a 30 year mortgage and how, how much longer do you have on that mortgage? Like how I've had the house six years. So a long time. Okay. So 24 more years to go. Yeah. Okay. Not bad. That's great. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I, I love it when like people own property. It just makes me, you know, happy. <laughs> I love it. I, I'm not a great homeowner, but I love it. I, I'm not good at repairs. I'm not. I thought my family was joking when they said that owning a house was like a part-time job. And it very much is. There's a, a lot of work that you don't realize your landlord does, um, you know, just to maintain um, and I'm very bad at that because I'm very busy and I don't put the time in and my yard is terrifying and my next door neighbors actually, eventually they hit their limit and they come over and mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> actually, okay, so I, I thought you had the cats in the backyard because you were like a nice animal lover and all that. Now I'm thinking it's just because you provide them an like a jungle-like environment that they love. You know, I they um, they provide a service. They they are my exterminators. I will never have a rodent problem. I will never have anything living under my house that shouldn't live there because I've got cats that will take care of that. So I, I consider them my my exterminators. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to ask more questions about this house. So it, it's in L.A. somewhere. Yeah, North Hollywood. North Hollywood. So is it like a standalone house or is it an apartment or a condo? It's a standalone house. It's a three-bedroom house. Um, I've got about 4,000 square feet of yard, a garage, a standalone garage as well. So. Cool, cool. So I'll, a after this interview, I will like Google that area and be like, what are house prices? No, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's fine. You know, my house was affordable because it didn't have central air, ah, okay. um, which is a huge thing in the valley. Uh, and my plan was that after about five or six years, I would have a contractor come in. I also, it's a three bedroom, one bath. The, the value of the house was lower because it was only one bathroom. Uh, so I want to knock out the, the, what is currently my spare bedroom, the back bedroom, um, and turn it into a master suite, build it, put a second bathroom in, put a walk-in closet, um, just expand the room and make it the larger room. Uh, and at the same time, put in central air. Uh, which will dramatically increase the value of the house. Um, but the plan was to do that uh, this winter, and I was busy, and then then a virus hit, and I'm not going to spend that kind of money right now. So actually, that, that's sort of good. That was sort of good timing that you didn't do it. <laughs> it's the wrong time to take on a lot of debt and then lose all work. 
So. We'll, we'll check back. We'll have you back on the podcast in 10 years and you'll, you'll okay. have like. Ch- I'll let you know if I have air conditioning. Yeah. We'll be like, okay, well, since we talked to you last, you now have two more. You're, you have two Tony Awards for sound design and you also updated your house. <laughs> Are you a saver or a spender? I'm a saver. I love to travel. I have a, a kind of personal goal of seeing all seven continents before I die. That's what I save for. So uh, currently I am saving, I have a deposit down on a trip to Antarctica uh, in December of 2021. Um, that will be a very, very expensive trip, far more expensive than than anything I've done before. Um, so I have a large savings account because I'm saving towards that goal. And I'm a little worried <laughs> that if this goes on too long, I might have to postpone that trip. I might have to to go another time because um, the savings is going to dwindle. But uh, but no, I would prefer to put my money aside for big things like trips rather than spend regularly on uh, on other things, including my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, risk averse or risk taker? Generally averse. Like my the few investments I have are very conservative safe investments. Um, my sister actually works in finance and, uh, she took a look at, I think it was my Roth IRA, one of my IRAs and was like, you're, you're being too conservative. Like you're being silly. And she went through and, and kind of revamped. It was like, you're, you're too young to be this conservative. Like, let's go a little more risky for you. And I trust her because she knows those things. That's the business she works in. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, that's one of those things where, you know, you go into somebody and they ask you, how risky do you want to be? I, I feel like there's no wrong answer. If you're young, they say, okay, you have to be risky. Like, that's sort of like the knowledge. But also on the flip side, like, you could be not risky and still, it would, as long as you're saving or you're setting aside, like, it's going to be okay. And I admittedly, I trust those decisions to my sister. Every once in a while, I send her statements. I called her recently and was like, I'm getting statements now from a company that I don't remember ever having. And why am I like, why am I getting three statements now instead of two? <laughs> and she's like, oh, she's like, I know why. I'll fix it for you. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> okay. Um, you might have touched on this already, but how did you grow up around finance? Like you had good examples with your parents? Yeah, my parents, they didn't earn a ton of money, but they had smart investments. Um, they were very conservative in the way they saved. And so, I, you know, that was, and that was something they always drilled into me. Um, and especially once I bought the house, you know, they're like, you, you have to have three or four months of savings set aside now that you have a house because you can't take the chance that something like a virus comes along and you lose your house. So that was something that was drilled into me at a pretty young age. So my uncle bought stock for me when I was a baby. Um, So that stock is sitting and dividing and, you know, the dividends pay back in and buy more of itself. So they just sit and grow and split. And every once in a while, out of curiosity, I look up what they're worth, but they are there's something that's just sitting there for someday when I retire. They're not, they will sit and grow for 60 years before I touch them, so. Do you think about money often, like on a daily basis, are you worrying about it? Currently, yes. Uh, it, the past five years, n- no. I've been comfortable enough that I've stopped worrying about it on a daily basis. Certainly when I came out 
of grad school and had very little work, then it was a constant. I was checking my bank account daily. Um, I checked my bank account before I went to the grocery store and because I needed to know what I had. And I had alerts set up that if my bank account dropped below $20, they would tell me right away because it was something that happened often. I, I laugh because those alerts are still set up but haven't gone off, you know. I laughed at myself, I don't know, maybe last fall. I looked at my bank account and it had dropped below $1,000 and I had a moment of like, oh. <laughs> And then I laughed at myself because it was a time that I $1,000 was inconceivable and I was excited if I stayed above $20. (laughs) So I've been a little more comfortable. I haven't had to count every penny. I also don't have a family I have to support. It's just me and the cats. Um, And I think we already know the answer to this, but if you have excess excess money, where do you put it? I, I mean, I save it for travel. Um, I've, I've traveled all over the world. I've seen 24 different countries to date. Um, and, and that's not nearly enough. The only continents I'm missing are Australia and Antarctica. Um, so those are kind of my next two big ones, but like, I want to see Russia. I want to see Korea. I want to see, I've, I've been to China, but you know, China's so large. I think you could go 10 times and not see China. (laughs) Um, Greenland and Iceland. I want to see, you know, there are, I feel like there's huge chunks of the world I haven't seen yet. Once I check off my seven continents, there's still a thousand places I want to go. I mean, I, I think that about Australia. It's like, yeah, you can go, but it's so big. You need to, you need to take like 10 different trips just to sort of get an idea for it. Same thing with China and India and maybe Russia too. I feel like that's a whole other podcast I could start about <laughs> travel. And actually this is interesting. And I don't know if this is because it's theater people or if it's just people in general, but Everybody on this podcast has said travel. Like, I love to travel. I want to go travel. I'm going to save to go travel, which, once again, I'm from Missouri. So, yeah, my parents and grandparents always wanted to take a trip. Like, they were going to retire and take a trip. But, like, we're talking, like, one trip in a lifetime. And theater people have all been like, I just want to go, want to go, want to see everything. My mother, well, she made the decision when I was 12. She decided to take my sister and I on a trip that we would never forget. I was at the right age that I caught the travel bug. Uh, She took us to Europe for two or three week trip and we traveled all over Europe and I I fell in love absolutely fell in love I turned 13 in Edinburgh you I am I'm like jealous of your life Uh, what has been a great financial decision that you've made so a friend introduced me to this app called capital um, with a Q, it's spelled with a Q, and it connects to your bank account, and then you set a series of rules, and based on those rules, it will pull money out of your bank account and stick it in a savings account that, I mean, you can see if you launch the app, but it's not easily accessible, I guess is the right word. Because they spent so many years making so little money, it was very hard to say, I'm gonna take 10% of that and set it aside or 15% of that and set it aside because I was worried on a day-to-day basis how I was gonna buy food and how I was gonna pay my rent. So once I started getting comfortable, I still very much had a mindset of, I can't take 15% out of that check, I might need it. And Capital gave me a way to take the money out and put it aside and it pulls out in small amounts. So you don't feel them coming out. It's not that at the end of the month, I look at everything and have to take $1,500 and put it aside. Every day it'll pull $4 or $5 or $10 out. Because it pulls in smaller chunks, you don't feel it as much. You know, I looked at the capitals actually, 
in anticipation of this podcast. And since I downloaded the app, I've saved almost $50,000. Now there's not $50,000 in it anymore because I pull them out when I take a big trip or when I have to pay my taxes or whatever. You think about in the five, six years I've had this app, that's a lot of money that I was able to set aside and then pull out when I needed it. And if you had told me that I could afford to pull 10 grand out every year, I would have told you I was crazy. That's absurd. Of course I can't afford to do that. But the app is pulling it in such small chunks. So I have it set up that every time my Apple Watch, if I hit my stand goal, it takes $2 out of my bank account and sticks it in capital. Every time I refill my Starbucks card, it's called the guilty pleasure rule. <laughs> so every time I refill my Starbucks card, it pulls $5 out and puts it in a savings account. And then I have the paycheck rule that it takes 15% uh, of my paycheck. So anytime I deposit something over $500, it takes 15% of it and puts it in a taxes goal. And then it takes 5% of it and puts it in my travel goal. And so it just pulls the money. I don't have to approve it. I don't have to notice it. It just happens. When this virus hit and within 48 hours, all of my work for the rest of the year vanished. I mean, and I was looking at six months with nothing on the calendar. The first thing I did was open up capital. And I was like, you know what? I've got a big chunk of money in there. I'm okay. I'm fine. Like I've saved more than I thought I had and I might lose my travel goals, but that's okay. That's fine. I'll just do it another time. I'll do it another year. This is amazing. Also, because like I always try to get people to open up Roth IRAs, like right when they start out, if I can get them to do that, I then say automate a payment. And I always say like, even if it's five or $10 a month, the automation to me is just so key. And capital seems like a brilliant way to do it like little piecemeal piecemeal instead of like every week or every two weeks or once a month like that. Yes, it's the automation. It's absolutely changed how how secure I feel. I don't notice the withdrawals coming out. It's like, oh, I bought one less coffee this week. You know, like the equivalent money of a Starbucks run is gone, but you leave it there a long time, it builds up. Well, hopefully they'll now sponsor my podcast because you explained it so thoroughly. I know, it's funny because they're doing a promotion right now that like, if you sign up, if you get a friend to join, they'll give me $25 and I'm like... Okay, we'll put, we'll put your promo code. I, by the time this comes out, it probably won't work, but we'll try to put your promo code in the show notes. And I was like, I just signed up a hundred people. What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what is a bad financial decision you've made? I mean, I will say jokingly going into the arts, but um, I don't actually believe that. <laughs> I mean, the, the arts, you have to do the arts because you love them, not because you want to get rich. Um, but uh, I don't regret it at all. I passionately love what I do and want to do it every single day. So I, I don't mind that I will never be rich. Although I will say you seem like, to me, you seem fine. Like, I, I'm not worried about you. <laughs> the credit card debt that I made very early in my career was, was definitely a misstep. I know why it happened, but, uh, you know, the 2008 downturn happened uh, when I was sitting on a lot of debt. I had been out of school five years. I wasn't using the cards anymore to support myself, but I definitely didn't have the money to pay them off. And then when the downturn happened in 2008, my interest rates skyrocketed. It was a moment of, oh crap. And I look back and realize that, you know, I had sent the credit card $10,000 over the course of 12 months and my, my principal balance had only gone down by like 2000 
And I was like, I'm, I'm never going to pay them off. <laughs> It'll never happen. So I, I think looking back, I re- regret how much I relied on them. It took the downturn in the economy for me to say, I need a better way to pay these off. Do all checks that you receive, is that just to Cricket Myers, the person, or do you have any entity, corporation, LLC structure at all? It's just to me. LLC's been, again, high on my list of things to do, but I haven't done it yet. I'm less interested in the LLC for the financial benefits. I don't know that it will make a huge difference in my taxes. I might save a little bit being an LLC, but for me, it's about the liability and protecting my house, protecting my assets. Right now, my house is vulnerable if a speaker falls out of the sky and bonks someone on the head and they decide to sue everyone under the planet. My house is vulnerable to that. And so having a LLC that has no actual assets will, I think, protect me a little bit better. I mean, I need to do a whole episode on on liability. I haven't even we haven't even covered that. Well, and it's another reason why you know California is pushing people to be employees rather than independent contractors because it's it's another thing that we're protected um, as an employee rather than as a contractor. We're not someone who can be sued separately when we're an employee. Uh, w two versus ten ninety nine. How how much of each do you usually have, like percentage wise? Fifteen percent W two. And the rest is 1099. I suspect some of that may change with AB5, but maybe not. Do you pay quarterly on your 1099 stuff? I should. It's more like semi-annually. <laughs> I'm not... I Every once in a while, I'm like, oh, crap, I didn't do that and send them a chunk of money. So it's not... I'm not very good about sticking to their the IRS's schedule on when I should pay quarterly. But I do pay... Um, I try to pay at least 60% of what I will owe before we get to April. That's great, because I just wait every year and then I have to pay taxes, and it's painful every year. <laughs> it's really painful every year, and I, I learned early that like if I have an extra 2000 sitting aside, I should send it now. <laughs> and now that I have capital and that that money is saved on a much more regular basis, like every time I get paid, it takes that 15% out. It makes it a lot easier to be like, oh yeah, I haven't paid quarterly yet and pull something out of capital to pay it. Nice. Uh, do you file your own taxes? No, I have someone else. I have a, a guy. We, have, we haven't found anyone yet that does their own taxes. <laughs> Two years out of grad school, I was doing my own and I didn't know the self-employment tax existed. I just didn't do that form because I didn't know it was a thing. And the IRS sent me a very nasty letter. Um, and I promptly went out and hired someone and have never attempted to do it again myself. <laughs> I was like, I, this isn't what I do. <laughs> your retirement plan will, let's just break down sort of like what all your potential income streams might be. So, well, I have stocks that I've invested in, or rather to be accurate, my uncle invested in when I was very young and are there. They are an investment, but they're not something I manage. Um, I have three different companies and they just sit. I ignore them um, and they grow. So uh, I'm not active in them. Okay. And are those, uh, that's not in an IRA or a 401k or anything? That's just like a brokerage account or something? Yeah. I mean, I have a, a safety deposit box that has st- certificates in it. Like they're, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's like really like hands-on yeah. sort of stuff. Well, and also hands-off. I don't manage them. I don't change them. I don't, you know, I'm not actively changing what stocks I have. They're just three things that grow in the background. And I know someday when I retire, 
they are there. Uh, so then I have a Roth IRA that, again, my uncle encouraged me to start. Um, my uncle's really good at this stuff, too. I, I like this uncle. We need to get your uncle on here. Right. <laughs> it crashed in 2008 and has never really come back well. So I actually sent, it, just recently, I sent all the information to my sister and was like, why is this not like it's not doing anything, which to be fair is partially because I'm not putting more money into it. Right, but you would hope that it would have grown out of that. Right, it has not in the way that I would have expected it to. Again, on my list of things that I was going to do this year is start investing in it more regularly. My priority was to get rid of the credit cards. I wanted to put the extra money that I had to get rid of the last of my credit card debt. And then that extra money that I would normally send to a credit card, I would send into the IRA. So I got so close. (laughs) Now it's going to be a little longer, but maybe next year I'll actually start having kind of automated deposits into the Roth IRA. And then through my union, I have a pension. Okay. So you have um, stocks in a security deposit box, which I don't know how that works even. (laughs) And then you have a Roth IRA and then you have a pension through... The union. Okay. Um, that seems solid. <laughs> we'll find out in 30 years. <laughs> what jobs have you had that are the most lucrative? And when you're picking jobs, do you sort of pick ones that are more lucrative or do you pick ones that are more artistically satisfying? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, the more lucrative ones will be the commercial. Things like Broadway or Disney, um, trade shows, things like that are all kind of corporate contracts. And I'm not going to turn any of that work down, uh, because they are so lucrative. Definitely my most lucrative contract was doing a, I did a couple of shows for Disney on their cruise ship. You know, those are, are by far the most lucrative. And part of that is because they own the content. I don't own the design once I'm done with it, which means they can run it for 30 years and I get no royalties. They can go in and change it at any time and they don't have to pay me to do that. Um, whereas a theater piece, um, so, so Disney works as a, like a work for hire. Most of the other theatrical pieces I work on, I own my designs. So if a theater decides to remount or move it to another theater or change it, they, they kind of have to include me in it. There's an opportunity for royalties or um, future work because I own my work. I say that the larger shows pay my bills so that I can play with the smaller shows. The culture in Los Angeles, the smaller theaters are going to be a lot more adventurous in the kind of work they do. So they pick the edgy new plays, they pick the playwrights nobody's heard of, they pick the the new work that's being developed, and they have directors who really challenge their designers to be a part of that team and to take chances whereas the larger houses and certainly the commercial ones are more are a little safer in the way that they want to work they're investing a lot of money and so they want to know that the product that comes out of it has the potential to make that money back Um, so they're a little more conservative in the designs and in the way they work and in who they hire so so I have a couple of theater companies that I've been involved with for uh, two decades, and um, they they give me a lot of kind of artistic freedom um, that's good for my soul. <laughs> but I like, you know, I love working at the LERT level. I think it's a great combination of of both of those things that there's enough budget that I can really do what I want and I can play and they are willing to try new things and they're willing to explore with me. They're not going to be super conservative in what they expect me to do and what they want me to do, but they also have kind of the money to back up my ideas, you know? 
it's like, I want to try this crazy line array. And they're like, okay, <laughs> you know, um, which you don't find in the smaller theaters. A lot of the smaller theaters, I have a budget of $5 and I do with that what I can. And it's an exciting artistic challenge, but also an exhausting one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How important has your personal network been and or combination here has your professional network been to your jobs and your career and I don't know maybe money I don't know if that applies at all has that helped <laughs> get you more money <laughs> <laughs> I mean I like my professional network and also my personal network I think the lines are very blurred <laughs> um it's hard to say that I have two different networks um my friends are also my colleagues um, and my colleagues are also my friends. But I think network is really very, very, very important. I don't apply for work anymore. Work finds me, um, and it finds me through my network. Either it's a director or a producer that I've worked with before that says, hey, I think she'd be great for this piece, or you know, the theater knows my work. Um, like you said, oh, I saw Bengal Tiger. I've seen your work. So I'll get people reaching out saying, you know, I've seen what you did. Or, but most of them, it's like, oh, I saw your work, and then I talked to this person about you. So I, I like, I think the network's very valuable, and it's. I spend a lot of time keeping in contact with that network, and you know, being active in my community, so that my network is kind of something I'm always involved with. You know, I. Award shows are as much a chance to shake hands as they are to celebrate. Yeah. How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? I had someone say that success is all about the three T's, tenacity, talent, and timing. Tenacity is, is you have to work hard. You have to put in the time. You have to put in the energy. You have to develop your skills and you have to keep challenging yourself and pushing yourself. Learn that new technology. Learn that new program. You have to put in the time. There's talent involved. You have to be good at what you do. There are some people who will work and work and work, and it, I will never be a good composer because it's not my talent. It's not where my talent is. I could work hard at any job, but if I don't have a talent in it, I'm never going to be truly successful. And the last part is timing. And, and that's the unpredictable part. That's the part you can't prepare for. You have to be in the right place at the right time, or you have to shake that right hand, or you have to, you never know when that moment's going to come. And so you have to be open to that moment and ready for it and looking for it, but you also can't you can't make it happen. I can tell you the moment that that happened for me, the moment that my career path changed because I was in the right seat. And it, it was a physical seat. I was sitting in the right seat at the right time. And I know when that moment was, and it changed, it changed the path of everything I had done up until that point. I was two years out of grad school. I, I felt the shift. Immediately the shift happened uh, within six months. And I was working on different kinds of projects and at different levels um, and meeting different kinds of people. And, and it changed. It changed where I am. And I know extraordinarily talented people that have just not had the timing. Okay, wait, wh where was this chair? What was this chair? And I know you're saying timing affects it, but I'm going to go find this chair. Where is it? <laughs> The chair is at a theater called South Coast Rep down in Costa Mesa. Um, the tenacity part of it, I, there was a program called LCS. It was a sound program. It was very expensive. It was very complex. I had been introduced to it in grad school, but certainly didn't feel confident in programming in it or working with it. South Coast Rep had the program. So I asked one of my mentors, Drew Dalzell, to introduce me to the sound supervisor at South Coast Rep, B.C. Keller. And I sent him an email and said, I want to learn this program. 
I don't know it. I want to learn it. So he invited me down for the next tech that they had. And he said, oh, a designer's coming in to tech the show. I came down and he sat me. He sat on the end and then I was next and then the designer so that I could hear what the designer was asking for and then could watch him make it happen. And so I spent the entire quiet time sitting, watching the designer work and watching BC program. Another designer walked into the theater that was doing another show in the complex and came in and had some questions for BC and asked those questions and saw me sitting there. So he went to production, this other designer went to production management and said, why is that designer getting an assistant when I don't get an assistant? I want an assistant. If he gets one, I should get one. So production management called BC and said, who is this assistant and how do we hire her for the next show? And BC went, he didn't have a, oh, her name is Cricket. (laughs) So I was hired then by this other designer to assist him. That show transferred to Broadway. Broadway announced that they weren't bringing any of the assistants, they were only bringing the designer. Except our show was programmed on LCS and Broadway ran on SFX. I could program both and the designer couldn't. So the designer went to Broadway and said, I have to bring my assistant. I need to translate between two programs and she knows both of them. So I was the only assistant that got to go to New York. It got me my first Broadway credit. And I came back here uh, within a couple months of that, became the resident assistant at the Mark Taper Forum because their attitude was like, oh, if you can assist on Broadway, you can assist here. And through there, I met incredible mentors. I started working in bigger theaters. I started learning from these Broadway designers that were coming through the largest house in town. I got to assist at the Amundsen. I, like everything changed and suddenly I was working at a much bigger scale and meeting people who worked at a much bigger scale. But it's just because I asked to go learn a program and was sitting next to BC. He recognized what was being asked and, and uh, passed me off as the assistant rather than someone who was there just learning to program. <laughs> That is an amazing story. (laughs) And like, would my career have gone where it would had I not been sitting in that chair? Maybe. Maybe there would have been another time that, that things shifted. I don't know. But I do know at that moment... Like that, me asking to learn that program, me putting in the hard work and wanting to learn that program, put me in the chair that got me noticed and got me my first Broadway credit and then, you know, continued from there. So that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So now Nicole is my wife uh, and she is a non-theater person and she has some questions she wants to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't a majority of theater artists have any savings or retirement savings? I mean, it's the cost of living versus what artists are paid. Artists live in very expensive cities uh, like New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. And the arts are not valued by our society in a way that gets them large enough grants to pay us enormous amounts of money. It's not producers being greedy. The money isn't there. Uh, You know, sure, I'm sure there are greedy producers out there, but I think most of them will pay us what they can, but they aren't getting large grants from the government. They aren't getting large grants from various places, and so they just don't have the money to pay out to us. So I think it's it's just cost of living versus what we make. If you're only making enough to pay your bills, you can't put money aside. That's also a nice way to paint producers because it's like, yeah, sure, there's some greedy ones maybe, but why would you be producing theater if you were greedy? Like right. you, would go do, you would go do something else. Yeah. <laughs> 
you don't know the answer to this, but how will COVID-19 affect the future of sound design and theater? You know, we don't know yet. There have been a lot of conversations about when we expect to start opening up theaters again. You know, the state of California put out a, a three-stage plan on when things can open, and theaters are very solidly in the second stage. Um, well, they list movie theaters, but you know, we, we count ourselves among that. But there's also been a lot of studies being, you know, surveys being sent out to subscribers and the, the regular theater goers saying, when do you feel safe to come back? And most people respond when there's a vaccine. Uh, and we don't know when that is. So even if we as artists are ready to come back and have stories we want to tell, I'm not sure that we have an audience. You know, how this will affect how theaters are done, I don't, I don't know yet. I think artists are exploring a lot of the technology that's been available, such as Zoom. For, for students that are going into college right now, do you think this is a good time for them to study theater? Yeah. I mean, here's the deal. Theater's been around for thousands and thousands of years, and there have been dozens of plagues. Um, <laughs> plagues. Plagues as severe as this. Plagues far more severe than this. I mean, we don't know where this is going. This might be one of the worst. We don't know yet, but theater has always come out on the other side of it. I think storytelling is at the root of the human experience. We need it as humans. Uh, we need it as a society. Theater has always been a part of that medium. Do I think this is going to kill theater? No. I don't think we should shy away from it. I do think theater programs need to spend more time on the business of theater. I think it's something that gets neglected. We're worried about the art. As artists, we are businessmen and we have to be. Uh, we are running a business and that business is me and my design. Use this time when you're not making art to start thinking like a business and start thinking about profit and loss and start thinking about expenses and how, you know, like how to manage the expenses to make a better profit and what your time is worth and what your art is worth. That's such a good answer. And out of this podcast, like this podcast is finding its way and the feedback I'm getting is we want more numbers. Like we want you to ask people what they get paid for a specific job. And, and that is a hard thing for me to like ask people to disclose. I think it's really valuable. And I think it's something you absolutely have to do. I, you know, it's something that like my union, USA 829, really encourages designers to talk to each other and share numbers because the only people who will profit from us not talking are the producers who are trying to screw someone. If I come onto a project and I know that I'm getting paid 10% less than every other designer, <laughs> you know, then I can go back to the producer and say, I, like, I don't want this contract, I want the contract they're getting, you know? And so I think it's really important to talk about numbers. You know, my parents came from a generation where talking about money was a bad thing. And so it was kind of, it's like, oh, you don't talk about your income. You don't talk about numbers. You don't, you know, like you, you joked, I want to know the value of your house. I, I'm not afraid to share that. It's a, one, you can find it on Zillow, but, but it's, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to talk about because I think not talking about it only supports the producers who are trying to screw you. Producers who are honest aren't going to have a problem with you talking about what you make. Yeah, and, and I'm still like tiptoeing around the issues, even though like I want to know, <laughs> you know, like I want to know. And like for Broadway, you can go get a rate sheet so you can 
you could sort of know there, but then outside of that. And like the rate sheets for the union are minimum guidelines. So you can ask for three times that. Um, you know, you don't, you don't have to only take what they offer, but they don't want you taking less. You know, It took me a long time to learn what I was worth and to learn when I could push back to a producer and say, I'm worth more than that. I won't work for $500 anymore. I am worth more. And if you want me, you'll find more money for me. Acknowledging that that means I might not get the show. But sometimes not having the show is better because I enforce that I am worth more. The moments I feel the most powerful are when I've turned things down. You know, for money reasons, like saying, I'm not going to work for that. I will work for this, but I won't work for that. And we part our ways. But it is so powerful to to feel like, oh, I may, I controlled that decision. And it took me a long time to be willing to not have the show. For a long time, it was like, well, working is better than not working. And it's like, no, sometimes not working establishes that you're worth more, and then the shows that come in the future will pay you more. The next time that producer reaches out to me, they'll be ready for my number, and I'm going to get it. Because ultimately, they do still want me, and they just didn't budget that for this one, and maybe they'll come back next year on a show that they have a slightly bigger budget on, that they know they can get me now, you know, that, and that's okay, you know, rather than just letting them pay me $500 for the rest of my life, you know. Sort of a follow-up question to the if people should study theater right now. Historically, it's like Broadway's in New York, LA's big, Chicago's big, big cities, Right now, you know, a lot of theater artists have to have a day job. Is it a good idea for people to move to the big artist hubs right now? Or should they switch to digital something or go to a tiny town or I don't know, any any thoughts on that? There are more opportunities in the larger cities than there are in the smaller ones. I don't think that necessarily means you have to go to school in a big city, but I always tell people when they're looking at colleges or grad schools, look at who the faculty is, where they're working, and the kind of work they're doing. And if that's the kind of work in the location you want, then that's the school for you. You know, there are schools that focus on, you know, like CalArts does the artsy and the experimental and you know, the, the very theatrical type stuff, whereas other schools focus more on theme parks or industrial work. Some schools, their programs are very focused around musicals versus plays. But who the faculty is and where they're working is really the most valuable thing because part of what you get out of school is connections to that faculty's network. If you want to live in New York City, then you want to go to a school with faculty that has connections to New York City so that when you come out, you've got the foundation of a, of a network to start with. So, uh, you know, I think there are more opportunities in the bigger theater, in the bigger cities, but that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't options in the rest of the country. Okay, so we've established that you are in USA 829, the design union. Pros and cons of being in that. I mean, there's a lot of pros. You know, the rate sheets, the setting, the minimums, the scale, the sense of scale, so you know what the shows ought to be paying you. The protections that come from their contracts, things like the design belongs to me. You cannot change it or use it again without me. And the strength to back that up. If a producer breaks the contract, if they remount the show and they don't pay me 
a remount fee or they don't pay me the royalties, I don't have to sue them. My union will. My union will contact them. My union will say, you've broken the rules. Let's figure it out. And that happens from time to time. Also, just the connections and the networks and the, you know, you go to the general membership meetings, you meet the other designers in town. Then when a contract comes across your desk, it's easier to reach out to the other designers and say, is my contract in line with yours? Are you getting what I'm getting? And having those conversations are fantastic. So there's there's kind of the networking that's built into it. Also, you know, health insurance and pension, which is not something a lot of artists have. The union, you know, your employers pay into healthcare and they pay into your pension. I haven't had to pay anything into the pension to have it. You know, my health insurance, I'm fortunate enough that I sign enough contracts that I don't pay for my health insurance anymore. My employers pay in enough and they each pay a little bit, but there's enough of them that they pay in and and I that's one less expense I have to worry about there's you know a great kind of support <laughs> to be like transparent I'm on the board of the union so yeah I'm, I was gonna ask uh, you about that <laughs> yeah I'm I'm the secretary of the western region uh board and then I am the western trustee to the national board so I actually serve on two boards of my union I so, gotcha okay uh, both at a local level and then at a national level. So so I am very, very in, kind of invested in that union culture at this point. But they, you know, they help fight your battles and you pay dues for that. I have found that those dues pay off in the end. You know, I had a show that filmed the live performance and turned it into a movie. Uh, and my contract says that I had to get paid for that. I did not know what had happened. I had no idea. My union reached out to me and said, did you sign a media rights with this person? I said, no, why would I have signed a media right? And they said, no problem. And, you know, a couple months later, a check showed up in my mail. <laughs> like, I had to do nothing else. That's wonderful. And for me, like, that's worth it to know that there is an organization that has my back, that is there to protect me and make sure that I'm, uh, I get paid for my work, <laughs> you know. The only con to joining the union that we've heard so far is paying the dues. But we've established that the dues are... So insignificant that it's not even a real con. <laughs> it's like paying taxes, but a, only a tiny, tiny, tiny little tax. In the time of COVID, when all of my shows canceled, I had contracts in various stages all the way across the country. And I had, you know, m my fees are paid in three chunks based on, you know, work delivered. I had shows at every stage of the way. I had a moment of, I'm going to lose everything. And my union reached out to all of these theaters and said, you've got 15 designers that were lined up for the rest of your season. And here's where each of them were at. And here's what you need to pay them, <laughs> you know? And so it wasn't me reaching out to these theaters saying, I had delivered the drawings. Could you please send my next check? It was my union reaching out and saying, we're going to protect our members. And, and I know that you just lost your whole season, but, but you'll pay them for the work they've done. And it was nice to to not have that on my plate as I was watching the world dissolve, <laughs> knowing that my business reps were out there and working. And when theaters started reaching out saying, well, we want to stream, again, the unions took all those negotiations off our plate. They handled those negotiations. They told the theaters what they had to pay us in order to make that adjustments to the way the season handled. And that was extraordinarily valuable. I ended up getting a lot more money out of my contracts than I ever expected to. I thought the whole thing was a wash. And my union 
you know, had conversations and, and those theaters stepped up and I was very grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. And the union immediately established an emergency fund for its members. So if you can't pay your rent, there's a fund that you can apply for. They immediately waive their dues for the next quarter. Because they're like, you're not making any income. We're not going to take any of it, you know. I was grateful for that. They immediately responded with, we are here for you. So let's let's find where you need the help and we'll help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm part of the USA 29. And I, I'm the kind of person that doesn't go to the meetings. And I don't talk to anybody. And I, <laughs> I, I need to work on that. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. But I will say, like, the online dialogue of the members... And the people on the boards that are orchestrating this, let's not have people pay dues and things. That dialogue has been so helpful for me for like navigating unemployment and for like figuring out the PPP and the CARES Act of like what sort of thing, like what direction should I go to? Just that network, that group of people where it's, it's not the union necessarily, but it is the union of the group <laughs> has been so immensely helpful. And that's not even like an official benefit of them. (laughs) Now to wrap up some questions that with COVID-19, I've basically been getting the same answers. So, but I'm going to ask them anyway. (laughs) Um, What is your financial goal for this year? Survival. (laughs) Just survival. Everybody has said that. (laughs) I think the past week has been an acceptance of the fact that I'm I need to have a job, even just for my sanity, because I'm not going to have theater for a while. And I go absolute stir crazy sitting in my house with nothing to do. So COVID's been really exciting for me. (laughs) (laughs) The amount of time I've spent standing in my yard yelling at the sky. Um, Um, What is your personal goal for this year? I, I want to use this time to learn the new software and learn new techniques and learn new technology that I'm not as familiar with. Some days that's easier than others. I sometimes find it hard to focus, but I am the kind of person who always wants to be learning and I'm, I'm curious about everything. I'm using this time to take classes in things that have nothing to do with theater as well as things that do. You're inspiring me because I, I, I decided to finally do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. And hours of editing, I imagine. <laughs> so. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. I, I thought it would be easy and boy, was I wrong. <laughs> All the best things. Uh, like take, I was before I started, I was reading Harry Potter books. Yeah. Like I'm going to work through this series. Well, I got to book five and then I started this podcast and I'm still on book five a yep. month later. Yep. I started, I've, I've always, in, I'm a fidgety person. I'm very fidgety. Uh, in middle school, I started folding origami and it's always something I've done. So uh, I started folding cranes and I am, I'm like 12 cranes shy of a thousand right now. Like I'm almost there. Wait, wait, a thousand since the pandemic began? Yeah, I started March 20th, 25th, I started folding. Um, and I, I literally, like my box is here, and when the box is empty, I have hit a thousand. Oh my uh, goodness. And there's, there's 12, 12 sheets, 13 sheets of paper left in there, so. What financial advice would you give yourself when you started your career, and or would you give somebody who's starting right now? Watch the credit cards, be careful of them. They're, they're sneaky, like they're sneaky, they sneak up on you. And you don't realize how much is left un- until that interest hits you. Uh, you know, st- start finding ways to save sooner. Um, I waited until I was comfortable. I am, I am very, very fortunate that this rainy day, that this, this virus hit when I had a rainy day fund. Um, because 10 years ago, I wouldn't have. And so I think 
it, you know, even if it's a dollar a week, it's a dollar a week and you'll have $52 at the end of the year and next year you'll have 104 and it's something is better than nothing. I love it. I think that's great. Okay. Final two questions. What separates those that have had a successful career in the arts versus those that stop or never start? Uh, working in the arts, working in theater is hard. Um, it's very hard and there's a lot of networking that has to happen and there's a lot of connections you need to make and, and it's a full-time job. I think that's super intimidating for someone early in the business. Uh, I think it's very hard to know where to start. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to find mentors very quickly who helped guide me through those years and help support me through those years. Um, The number of times I called John Gottlieb and said, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. And he said, I will hire you to come work in my studio. Just tell me how many hours you need. Um, I wouldn't have made it through without that kind of support. But I also think there are people that don't want to put in the 80 hours a week. They don't want to be working nights and weekends. They, they want to have a personal life. They want to have a family. They want to have um, those other things. And that makes it hard, too, that, that there is a point in your career where theater demands that kind of attention to keep things going. And it's something that has to change to keep theater diverse. We lose the people. I, I am fascinated. I'm fascinated by those first five years in the business and what happens in those first five years. Because when you look at the grad school classes, they're large and they're diverse and they're exciting. And five years later, so many of them are gone. And I'm really interested in what happens in those five years. Like, what do people leave by choice or do they leave because they feel like they can't survive? Um, and how, and for the people who want to stay, how do we help them stay? I don't know that I have all the answers because I did stay. I didn't leave. So I know what helped me along the way. I don't think there's any one simple solution. And I don't think there's any one reason why a group of people decide not to do this anymore. Um, it could be that their interests change. It could be that, you know, there's a thousand reasons. Um, I love that. But you and I should work together to like make a, <laughs> analyze that first five years and give people, the, the people that are going to stay in the, after that five years, we need to give them like a, here's your roadmap of, which is an impossible thing, of course. <laughs> um, Mark Taper hired me as the resident assistant uh, for two years. And what that meant was they paid my health insurance for two years. So two years, that was a huge expense taken off my, my plate for those first couple of years out of school. The model was set up that I would be in for three weeks working pre-production tech previews. When the show opened, I then had the six weeks of the run where I didn't have to put in any hours to Center Theater Group. Um, I had six weeks all to myself. Then I had another three weeks when the next show went into production. So I knew that every other month I had a solid income I could count on. And I had six weeks to develop myself as a designer and to develop my own career and my own life. And knowing that I had that regular stability, it it wasn't a ton of money, but it was something I could count on. And that made a huge difference for me when I was struggling and when I was frustrated, it's like, 
it's okay because there'll be another taper show in two weeks. Like I'll be okay because I'm back under their umbrella soon. And I think, how do I make more experiences like that for the people coming out of school? How do we make more things where, where they're given it something steady, something they can count on, but also an opportunity to go out and develop themselves and, and find their own network and find their own aesthetic and find their own careers and don't get pigeonholed as a, as a, full-time assistant, you know, that they have a chance to do both, but I don't know how to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, well, people are going to listen to you here and then they're going to reach out to you and be like, cricket, help me. I'm moving to LA. I want to be a sound designer. And you know, you're, you're going to help. I tell all young sound designers, like send me an email. I, I tell anybody who emails me and says, I want to buy you coffee. I will go and meet with. And maybe I'll hire them, maybe I won't, maybe it'll just be coffee, but I, I am absolutely always help, happy to meet with, with young people who are trying to figure it out. Perfect. That segues into the final question. Where can people find out more about you? I guess my website, which I'll get around to updating. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Five probably... you have, you, I think you have like seven weeks before this Great. comes out. So <laughs> Plenty maybe. of time. <laughs> <laughs> actually, wait, I'm lying. You have two weeks. That way you'll actually okay. do it. <laughs> <laughs> Deadlines are good things okay. for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're amazing. Awesome sound designer. We didn't even really talk about any of your accolades, but thank you so much for sitting down. You were awesome to chat with. No problem. I'm happy to. That was our interview with Cricket S. Myers. My takeaways were keep a budget, however it works for you, automate savings, even if only a small amount, consider buying property, keep positive about student debt, and don't let it stop you from saving for retirement or a rainy day. Have various pools of money to count on in retirement. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu.